many Americans are constantly searching where to put their stuff. If you leave here and drive around town, it won't take you very long to find a place where there are something called storage units. Storage units are literally a unit of space that you buy. You don't show up and get food or, or go to the checkout counter. You buy a unit of space where you put stuff. Near these storage units, you'll probably find a place where you can rent something called a U-Haul truck. These trailers and trucks are moving billboards that proclaim to everyone who sees them, I'm moving some stuff. <laughs> Within or near the U-Haul rental place, there will be a business that sells moving boxes. These are smaller boxes used to transport stuff. And they're a place in the big U-Haul box to transport all of our stuff. We go to the average American home, and we find the same search of where to put stuff. You think of all the places where you put stuff in your house. You have the attic, the basement, the closet, the pantry, the cabinets, the drawers, under the bed, kids, <laughs> under the stairs, the shed, the garage, we could keep going. We even have computers and phones that have run out of room to store stuff. My phone asks me every day if I want to buy more storage. And I tell it no every day. When we look through basements, attics, or garages, we find any and everything. There are old clothes, old trophies, old files old toys, old games, old exercise equipment, old tools, old decorations, old music, old photos, and just plain old junk. These things can range from being useless to being boring to kind of interesting to flat-out weird especially if you've ever watched the show Hoarders. Most people treat their lives and their status with God like an attic or a basement. They have accumulated a bunch of stuff that they never think about. When they stand before God, they're going to give him this grand tour of their attic. They're going to say, look, 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 God. Do you see this? This is that time I gave a dollar to that Salvation Army guy outside of Walmart. Look, God, this is, this is how many times I went to church. God, do you see this? This is how many Bibles I have. Oh, God, remember this one? This is my Jesus bumper sticker. This is my Facebook posting. Oh, God, there's so much more stuff. Oh, you, could, you can ignore all that junk in the corner. Come on. There's so much more good stuff here. What that person doesn't realize is that their attic or, or their basement 
has actually become a sewer. Now, have you ever been, have you ever been hit in the face by a smell? Do you walk into a room or someone's house and it, it just straight up stinks? But the people living there, they have no idea. And now you're thinking, well, maybe that's, maybe that's my house. You need to think of the attic of your heart or the attic of your life is full of, of good stuff. But you have no idea that it's tainted by the putrid sin all around it. And we see this reflected even in Scripture. That even our good works are filthy rags before God. Paul in Philippians, he says that all the great religious things that he did before he became a Christian, he says they're rubbish. He says they're dung. Literally an expletive in the Greek. This stench, this stain is deep within us. And all the things we try to do to remove it only pile on how bad it is. And this is what so many people are proud to present to God. It is only the Holy Spirit that makes us aware of the awfulness of our hearts. It is only when we understand the bad news, friends, that the good news shines all the more brightly and that it cleanses our hearts. We come this morning and continue in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. You can find it printed in the insert of your bulletin. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray as we begin. God, would you bring us understanding from your word for those who have believed and for those who haven't believed? Would you help us to behold your beauty in this wonderful gospel? We must decrease, God, but you must increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
the main point in this passage this morning is that all the goodness we have, we have only in Christ by faith. Whether it is our standing with God or whether it is our transformed lives, all the goodness we have, we owe to Jesus. So we're going to see this in two points. The first is verses 15 to 16 where Paul establishes that we are justified in Christ. In the second paragraph, he responds to an objection and says that we are dead in Christ, but also that we are alive in Christ. So we approach the first point. We are justified in Christ. In Paul's defense of the gospel of grace that he preaches, he has already established on the basis of an autobiographical account, that the gospel he preaches is indeed God's gospel. He received it from God. That this gospel he preaches is in fact the same gospel as the one as the Jerusalem apostles preach. And last week we saw that the gospel that he and the other apostles preach is the authority for Christian living. That means that if salvation is truly by grace through faith in Christ, then they, then they cannot make the Gentiles to feel like second-class citizens. Because the basis of unity and the basis of a righteous standing with God is not keeping the Old Testament law, but repenting from sin and believing in Jesus. So we saw that Peter lived inconsistent with this gospel. The gospel that he believed, the gospel that he preached. That by removing himself from eating with the Gentiles, he was adding a requirement that he knew and previously displayed was not really there. Paul spent all this time defending his gospel and showing its authority, and now he continues his speech to Peter that he's telling the Galatians about. And he's going to establish and remind them the actual gospel that he preaches. So the portion of text we approach this morning is perhaps the heart of the epistle, the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the Christian gospel. Friends, we should never grow tired of the gospel or think we have advanced beyond it. Indeed, as we continue in the book of Galatians, we will see how important the gospel is, not just in our conversion, but in our whole Christian life. So as we approach this magnificent description of justification by faith, we keep in mind the words of Martin Luther, who said the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. So we come to verse 15, verses 15 and 16, and in these two verses, Paul is setting a trajectory of a contrast, of a way that works and a way that doesn't work. And to do this, he's calling back Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christians to common ground, Common ground that they have with Paul and common ground that they have with all of the Gentiles. 
the common ground that they have with Paul, we see in verse 15, is that they are Jews by birth. They are Jews by birth and not what? Not Gentile sinners. This means that they are those born with the law of God. Some, like those who collided with Jesus in John 8, thought that this religious heritage gave them some automatic favor with God. And there are those still today who ride on the coattails of the religiousity of their parents and their grandparents. That they, they get automatic favor with God just because who their grandma is or who their dad is. So they have this common heritage. But how does verse 16 begin? Because it's that one word, yet. Paul is saying that despite their status as Jews and having the law of God, this does not mean that they inherit a right standing with God. In other words, their status as Jews does not mean that they are any better off than the Gentiles. And when you read the book of Romans, this is what Paul is at pains to prove in the first three chapters. He shows that both Jews and Gentiles are sinful. He says in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The common ground all mankind, without exception. All humans are sinful. Whether Hindus in India, Muslims in Iran, or suburbanites in Ohio. If we have this common ground, then the question becomes, how are we made right with God? How are we, as Paul says, justified? Now, it's important to define our terms, and there are several terms that we need to define in this passage. By justified, as Paul uses it, he's meaning a judicial term based in the Old Testament. So when a judge presides over a case, he does not make the person guilty or innocent. He declares them guilty or innocent. So the question becomes, how do we get a good declaration, a righteous declaration before God? This is where Paul uses a contrast. He reminds Peter and the others that a righteous declaration before God comes by faith in Christ, not the works in the law. And he hammers this home three different times. He repeats this principle progressively. And he starts, he uses a general principle. He says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Another term we have to define. What does he mean by works of the law? He means nothing short of all the works demanded by the Old Testament law. And how do we know this? Well, we think of the context, and we look to the context, and this comes crystal clear in Galatians 5, verse 3, where Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, all the requirements. We are not justified by the works of the law. 
It is not through works of the law that, are, they, that they know a person is justified, but what? But through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. Another term we have to define. What does he mean by faith in Christ? What are the things he's contrasting? He's contrasting actions. He's contrasting the action of keeping the law with the action of believing in Christ. But how does this make us right with God? How does believing in Jesus give us a righteous declaration? It is because by faith we lay hold of the merits of Christ who kept the law perfectly. Thus, in general terms, Paul states that a person is not declared right before God by keeping the law themselves, but by trusting in the one who kept the law perfectly, in Jesus. So Paul repeats this principle again. He does not end here. He hammers this principle home by applying it to himself and to Peter. He says, so we also have believed. So we also have believed. You wonder what was going through their minds when he said, when he said this. You wonder what Peter was thinking. At the moment he first believed, we think of his history with Jesus when Jesus called him from Galilee, walking with Jesus throughout all of Israel. We wonder if Peter thought back to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked his disciples who they said he was. And Peter responded in a declaration of faith. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's not just a general principle. It's something you make personal. It's something that you believe yourself. And believing in Jesus is more than intellectual agreement. As we've said before in the book of James writes, that even the demons believe and they shudder. Now the original, it literally says that we believed into Christ. So that they took their whole selves and they, they jumped in. This is complete trust. It's complete personal commitment. And notice the result of their faith. The results of their faith is that they were justified. Justification, the righteous declaration, comes when one believes in Christ. His righteousness is then imputed to their account. It is credited to their account. So we are justified by faith because faith is not an achievement. But it unites us to the achievements of Christ. Therefore, we do not participate with God in achieving our salvation or earning a righteous declaration. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, it's almost done. I'm just waiting on you. One commentator summarizes Paul's presentation to this point by saying, what is generally true must become personally true and is also universally true. 
Paul says that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Why can we not earn a righteous declaration? Well, Paul alludes to a psalm here. He alludes to a psalm written by David. It may be helpful to answer that question. Why can we not earn a righteous declaration by keeping the works of the law? It's Psalm 143, verses 1 to 2. David writes, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ears to my plea for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David is pleading with God for mercy. But he says, God, if you judge me, I'm going to stand condemned. And he advances his argument even more. God, not just me, no one can stand in your presence. We see this throughout Scripture. When men are brought into the glory of God, we see Isaiah, we see Peter. What happens? They become aware of their sinfulness. They see that awfulness in their heart. And then no one can stand before God. And on the basis of what we have done, we only deserve God's judgment. And the only way we can stand before God, as David says, is if God has mercy. And God's mercy has arrived in his son. So do you see the contrast? That by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But by faith in Christ, we are justified. As a whole, then, verse 16 is perhaps the most important verse in all of Galatians. It's the starting point. It's the center. It's the paradigm. This is how God justifies us. This is how we get that righteous declaration. Through faith in Christ. So stepping back and examining ourselves, I'd like to ask two questions. First is do you see the common ground? Do you see the common ground? I had a brief conversation with a guy at the gym this week, and uh, the weight room around 6 or 7 p.m. at the gym is uh, an interesting place. Uh, it is peak, what I like to call, bro hour. Um, <laughs> and there are plenty of power lifters where I go who just put up serious weight. And um, this guy and I were negotiating over a piece of equipment, and um, he tells me how he is still regaining his strength. Now, this guy is just the stereotypical male gym goer. Uh, he's working class. Um, he's pretty loud, and he curses like it's a nervous tick. <laughs> he was telling me how he fell off a 25-foot roof five years earlier, and he got seriously hurt. He was showing me some of the scars from his surgery. I mean, he has rods and plates in, in his ankle, in his wrist, in his shoulder, um, and it, and it took him six months. It took him six months to learn how to walk again. Now you, you wouldn't know that a guy like that could be humbled. But he said that every day during that time, he cried. 
So it's so easy for me to walk into the gym and hear vulgarity, hear men just tell stories of objectifying women. And like the Pharisee who's looking at the tax collector, say to God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like them. That's a reprehensible thought. I stand as much sinful as that man. Apart from Christ, I have as good of standing as that man. And like when he had his accident, it's a reminder that all of us will stand before God weak, without an excuse, humbled. And we go back to the text and Paul's reminding Peter and the other Jewish Christians that although they may think their inherited status from birth makes them better off than the Gentiles, it does not. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, no one can stand. Do you hear that? There's no boasting. There's no self-righteousness. None of these things before God. And justification by faith is all the more proof that pride is an abomination to God. Because Jesus paid it all. He didn't go Dutch with you and pay half. He paid it all. So let us humble ourselves then, friends. God doesn't see you or me with the world's standards. He sees you with his own which means we all fall short. And this just undercuts our nature, doesn't it? Because we are creatures of pride. You get a little bit of praise and you just, you love it, you feed off of it. But the gospel says that you are condemned, that you are unimpressive. But you know, at the same time, it says that you were, that means you were more loved than you ever thought. That despite this, God sent his son to die for you. So do you know the common ground? Secondly, do you know the way? If someone were to ask you, how do you become a Christian? How do you get that righteous declaration before God? What would you say? If we all have this common ground, it's a liable question for anyone to ask. Your answer, friends, reveals what you are leaning on. The answer is not read the Bible, come to church, volunteer for a charity, do some good deeds, make the good outweigh the bad. Those will not clear our guilty verdict. We need someone to stand in our place. We stand before God like David and agree that we are not the way. But we know the one who is the way. We cast ourselves in faith on him, his work, his death, his resurrection. Do you know that way? Well, this leads us to a natural objection, doesn't it? If we are justified by faith in Christ, and not our works, 
then is Christ a servant of sin? Then is Christ just saving us to do whatever we want? For a free-for-all kind of life? This is the objection of the Judaizers. It remains the objection of many today. So we come now to the second point as Paul responds to this. He lays out the objection in verse 17. He responds to it in verses 18 to 20. And he gives a summary of it in verse 21. So take a look at verse 17 and notice the rationale of the Judaizers. If Christ alone is our justification and not the works of the law, it makes sense then that those who have faith in Christ will stop seeking justification through works of the law. So for Paul and Peter, this meant that they were going to look like Gentile, Gentile sinners. The ones back in verse 15. Where do we see this? We see the perfect example of this in the previous set of verses. Because what was Peter doing? He was eating with the Gentiles. And he got a lot of raised eyebrows. The Judaizers seek Jewish Christians as no longer living under the law and conclude that Christ facilitates this licentious lifestyle. They see grace as being really dangerous. By believing in Jesus... Have Christians landed on community chest and picked up that get-out-of-jail-free card? Paul says, certainly not. Paul's response is twofold. The first comes in verse 18 and 19, where he says, the law has been satisfied. The law has been satisfied. Look at verse 18. Paul, Peter, and the Jewish Christians only prove themselves to be sinners or like the Gentile sinners if keeping the works of the law is the way of justification. Paul says if he rebuilds the law as a requirement, he proves himself to be a transgressor. Why? Verse 16, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is exactly what Peter was doing. By withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles, he's reestablishing a part of the law. And when you reestablish a part of the law, you reestablish the whole thing. And the more requirements you have, the more you prove prove to yourself and prove yourself as unable to keep all those requirements. So that's kind of the ironic thing about legalism, isn't it? They emphasize doing a bunch of stuff. But that emphasis only proves how much you fail. If we rebuild the law and show ourselves to be transgressors, it's our own fault, not Christ's. What Paul says in verse 19 then is that he has a new relationship to the law. He says he died to it. He's freed from its authority and therefore he's freed from its condemnation. Similarly, in Romans chapter 7, in Romans 7 verse 4, he said that we have died to the law. In Romans 7 verse 6, he says that we have been released from the law. 
How did this death, how did this freedom from the law come about? Verse 19, he says, it came about through the law. That's a tough phrase. Died to the law through the law. The context in Galatians helps us here. This means that the law's punishment and the law's curse that's reserved for us because of our disobedience was poured out on Christ. This is what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. Looking back again to Romans 7, it says that we died to the law through the body of Christ. So did faith in Christ make them like Gentile sinners? No. Because the law has run its course. It's been satisfied. Its judgment has been meted out. The way we are freed from condemnation that we deserve under the law is not trying to keep it ourselves, but uniting to the one who kept it and who took the condemnation that we deserve. So because of that, Jesus has ushered in a new era of grace and freedom. And this leads to Paul's second part of his response. In this new era of grace, Jesus has not only saved us from the curse of the law. No, he's done more than that. He's won us new hearts. It's not merely a new legal status. We don't just get the righteous declaration. We get a new character. This is the era of freedom not to do whatever we want, but the era of freedom to live to God. This is the second part of Paul's response to the Judaizers' objection. He says in verse 20 that he has been crucified with Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. It's not just our sins, friends, that are nailed to the cross. It is our old self. Our old self enslaved to sin. Our old self under the condemnation of the cross of the law. The new self whose existence is determined by the indwelling Christ has replaced the old self. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Faith in Christ means that we are united to all that Christ has. Everything that Christ has is ours. His righteousness, his death, his resurrection, his inheritance. As our old selves have died in Christ's death, our new selves are raised with his resurrection. Paul continues in verse 20 and says that our new self is the life we live in the flesh. The life we live in the flesh, having been forgiven in the era of grace, but not yet perfected, still weak, still with a possibility to sin. But this life we live in the flesh, we live in the era of grace. And this life is marked by what? 
the life we live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. A life marked by believing. A life marked by believing. So we see what Jesus has accomplished for us. A new legal status and a new character. We are radically changed so that our new desire is Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, he says that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And this radical change of new desire was promised from long ago. From the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's moldable. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So do you see what Christ has won for us? He's won forgiveness. He has won a right standing with God. He has won freedom from condemnation of the law. He has won freedom from ourselves. This is our peace. This is our joy. Behold the glorious, the suffering, the triumphant Lamb. This is the one, Paul says, who loved me, who gave himself up for me. If you are in Christ here this morning, you could say those words, those comforting words with confidence. He loved me. He gave himself up for me. You see what he has accomplished. So we come back to this objection has Christ won us justification so that we can be free to sin and do whatever we want? No. Christ hasn't just won our justification. He has won our transformation. Those who have faith in Christ have died to sin and their lives are marked by the desire to live to God. So friends, do you live according to this freedom and according to this new life? Or do you substantiate the claim and the objection of the Judaizers? Do you live your life in such a way that you find security in the things that you do rather than in what Christ has done? Is your life lived by faith in the Son of God? And asking those questions, I want to promote introspection, not doubt. Because unity with Christ through faith is secure. Luther describes it as being cemented. But we live in the flesh, having been forgiven but not yet perfected. So let us ask God to cultivate the desires of our new heart that he has given us. That should be our prayer every single day. God, cultivate the desire for Christ in me. That desire that you have given me, that you have won for me. And cultivate that 
through obedience. In your scripture reading, every time you go to the Bible, it should be your prayer that you dwell on Christ and that you leave your time having a greater view of who God is, what he has done in the gospel, and who his son is. Let us dwell on Christ in our prayer, expressing praise for him, expressing trust in him. Let us dwell on Christ in our conversations, thinking of how we can honor him with our lips. Let us dwell on Christ in our alone time, taking every thought captive to him. Let us dwell on Christ at work, honoring him in our attitude, in our work ethic, in the relationships that we have. Let us dwell on Christ and cultivate the desire of the new heart that God has given us with our families, with our friends. To live is Christ, friends. To live in that new life of faith in Christ is a life marked by believing. Every component. So let us ask God to cultivate the desires of the new heart he has given us and has won for us. So the end of the matter, brothers and sisters, comes in verse 21. Going back to the law as the way of justification nullifies the grace of God. If there was the slightest of possibility that we may achieve justification on the basis of our works, then Christ died in vain. If we could attribute anything, if we could contribute anything, then Christ died in vain. Theologian J. Gresham Macon said that this verse captures the central thought of the letter. The Judaizers attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by the merit of their own obedience to the law. That, Paul says, is impossible. Christ will do everything or Christ will do nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification is even in the slightest measure through human effort, then Christ died in vain. This is the gospel. By faith, Jesus' righteousness becomes our righteousness. The payment of his death by faith is credited to us and stands in our place. And by faith, his resurrection raises us to new life. Jesus paid it all, and he did not die in vain. So all glory be to him. Let's pray. God, make us gospel people. Write this on our hearts, Lord, because we are often prideful. We often esteem you not. We credit ourselves and think of ourselves more highly than we ought. 
remind us of justification by faith. That we are united not to what we've done, but to what Christ has done on our behalf. Would you help us live in this, Lord? To walk in faith in the Son of God and cultivate the new heart you have given us to make us more like him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.